I don't know when the dollar is going to crash, but if you're if you're short the dollar when it does, you're going to make a lot of money. And the way I short the dollar is by owning gold, owning silver, owning mining stocks, owning companies outside the United States that the shares trade in foreign currencies. My guest today is Peter Schiff. Peter is founder and chief market strategist of Euro-Pacific Asset Management. Peter was one of the very few economists and investment professionals to have warned about the 2008 financial crisis before it began. He appeared on CNBC, Fox, and Bloomberg back in 2007 and 2008 and said, home prices were going to come crashing down to earth, we're going to be experiencing an enormous credit crunch, and we're heading into a major recession. Peter was ridiculed and mocked for his bold predictions. Short time later, it was Peter that had the last laugh as the U.S. headed into the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. I recently sat down with Peter to discuss his thoughts on Bitcoin and how to prepare for the coming tsunami of inflation headed our way. All right, Peter, I look forward to this uh, conversation for uh, since I first knew about you, and this is back in 2007, 2008. That's when I saw a video of you on YouTube on Bloomberg, CNBC, Fox, getting laughed at. They were ridiculing you. Tell me what was going on then again. Well, you're talking about the, the years that were leading up to the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, the specific video that you likely saw was the one that was called Peter Schiff Was Right. And it highlighted mostly a lot of my Fox News stuff. But there were other videos that came out, didn't get as popular. But I was pretty much a fixture on financial television for a few years, probably 2005 through 2008, maybe into 2009. Uh, and I was on all the time. I mean, I wasn't just on CNBC, Bloomberg, uh, but I was on Fox, Fox News. I was on CNN. I was on MSNBC. But my, my big ones were Bloomberg and CNBC. I was on all the time, uh, every week. And then I started doing the Fox News, the Saturday shows, where they had, you know, there's like this two hours of uh, market programming on the weekends. And I was on there quite a bit. And the, the difference was everybody thought it was everything was great because the markets were rising and real estate prices were going up and uh, pretty much everybody was optimistic. And I was saying, wait a minute, this is all a bubble. This is all because of the Fed and the fact that they lowered interest rates to 1%. And now, uh, you know, they're still artificially low and it's all bleeding into this real estate bubble and there's all this reckless lending and this bubble is going to pop. Real estate prices are going to fall. Loans are going to default. Uh, financial entities are going to fail. Uh, we're going to have uh, bankruptcies on Wall Street. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are going to go bankrupt. I was talking about all this and everybody was just, yeah, laughing at me, making fun of me because as far as they were concerned, uh, there was there was nothing wrong. Everything was great. The economy was booming. There was no recession anywhere in sight. Housing prices would always go up. And, you know, I was just this gloom and doom guy that they liked having around just because they wanted to at least show that they, you know, had both sides of the, the coin, right? that they weren't all bullish, uh, just plain cheerleaders. They had me along to provide the counterpoint. And sometimes, you know, it was like almost like comic relief. You know, they needed somebody on there that they can make fun of. The problem was when all my forecasts came true, 
that's pretty much when they stopped inviting me on. So you were the clown. You were the, they basically <laughs> got you as a clown to, uh, to really, because I, I watched some of them uh, just, you know, even before this interview, and they were ridiculing you, mocking you, and laughing you. First of all, totally disrespect, uh, res- disrespect there. But secondly, they just weren't listening to what you had to say. Now, you de- agree or disagree, you had some excellent points there, and they were not addressing it back in 07. Yeah, well, that's the problem. Just as in the current mania, when you're trapped in a bubble, you know, it's almost like cognitive dissonance. You tune out anything that contradicts the narrative that you that you have in your head. But I didn't mind. I actually enjoyed the fact that they were all making fun of me because I knew they were wrong. Um, and it was just a matter of time. And eventually I had the last laugh, although they control the network. So they decided, hey, we can't let this guy laugh at us anymore because now we just you know, can't make fun of him because he was right. And initially, I still got some media attention you know, for being right. I mean, it, it didn't, they didn't just cut me off right away. Uh, but then it eventually like completely disappeared, the, my invites. Now I'm, I'm on once in a while. You know, I still go on Fox uh, News, not Fox News, Fox Business, although I was on Fox News the other day uh, with um, Tucker Carlson, who I happen to be a big fan of Tucker's show. I actually watch that show a lot. And, and so he had me on. So, you know, it's not like there's a complete media blackout of me, but I haven't been on Bloomberg in nine or 10 years. I mean, they clearly banned me. I, I, they even, I used to co-host the shows for an hour. They had me on, you know, in addition to all my other spots when they had me, uh, CNBC hasn't had me on in, I don't know, three years, four years. Um, so those networks have clearly, you know, decided that I'm not welcome. Uh, CNN haven't been on that in quite a few years uh, either. So that that network doesn't doesn't want me. So what does that say to the average investor who watches these shows and actually tries to invest based on who they're putting up in front of the camera that day? <clears throat> well, you shouldn't actually look at these shows for investment advice. I mean, it's it's entertainment. Um, and it, it, there's a certainly an agenda there. Uh, they want to promote certain types of investments and certain types of strategies. Uh, and so you're getting very biased uh, coverage. So I, you know, I think that you can look at some of these networks for the news about like look at the tickers or see what's going on. But if anything, when it comes to how to make your investments, they're probably more of a contrarian indicator. You know, when you see a lot of people making the same type of recommendations, then it's probably a good idea to do the opposite of that, right? Try to figure out the type of investments that they're not encouraging people to make. And those are more likely the values that you want to concentrate on. So what were you seeing back in 07? And then we'll get to modern day, but I just find it so fascinating. What were you seeing in 07 where real estate <laughs> housing never went down uh, in, in, in all, all at once, separate, different markets, did go down for small periods of time, but never across the nation. What were you seeing there? What were you seeing in, in terms of credit and in terms of subprime that everyone was just missing? Well, I mean, I understood, number one, the, the effects that monetary policy was having uh, on the real estate market and on lending and on the moral hazards created by Fannie and Freddie. Um, and, you know, I saw firsthand, I mean, living in Southern California and just looking at the lax lending standards at the zero down 
uh, mortgages and interest-only mortgages and, uh, you know, no doc loans. And all of this was crazy. And, you know, I wrote my book, uh, Crash Proof, or Crash Proof, How to Profit from the Coming Economic Collapse. They came out in 07, uh, early 07. But I, I mainly wrote it in 2015 and 2016. And, and so I was initially even going to title the book about real estate, like the coming you know, America's dream is it going to be America's nightmare or something. And, but I ended up making the real estate you know, a chapter rather than the whole book because I wanted to have a broader topic for my first book than just you know, why real estate was a bubble. But you know, people couldn't see this. You know, I went to speak at this conference of mortgage brokers, the Western Regional, Regional Mortgage Bankers Conference. And I spoke in 2015, and I was on a panel. Wait, what do you mean? 2015 meaning, I'm sorry, you're a little confused here. I mean, 2005, excuse 2005, me. 2005, Yeah, I got my okay. decades wrong. That's right. So I spoke in 2005, and I was on a panel with a lot of the bigwigs in the banking industry and the housing industry, and they were all very optimistic. Now, 2005 was really the peak of the housing bubble, and I was the only guy there that was negative, saying it was a bubble and the prices were going to crash and all this bad stuff was going to happen. And so nobody believed me. But this was a wild convention. Everybody was on you know, cloud nine in Vegas. They were making tons of money. And you could see it just in the opulence of this conference and how much money they were spending on entertainment. So this was the heyday at the time for the mortgage bankers. So I warned about all the problems. Anyway, a year later, they invited me back to have a debate. And the only reason I agreed to go was at the time I was trying to raise money for a hedge fund that was shorting subprime mortgages that I had got started with a guy named Andy Lottie, uh, who came to my office, you know, earlier that year to let me know about, you know, how the subprime market actually was working as far as uh, how it was being financed. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, this is crazy. These bonds are going to go to zero. You know, these are these. Uh, uh, tranches of the securitized mortgages uh, that were rated triple B minus. And I was like, look, this they should be rated F. They're going to fail. And so he said, OK, let's start this hedge fund. I said, look, you start the hedge fund and I'll raise you the money because this is a you know slam dunk that these things are going to collapse. So I, I needed investors to invest in the fund to bet against subprime. And so I, I knew I was going to come to this conference or 3000 people there. And I said, I want you to give me a workshop. I want to be able to pitch this hedge fund and I want people to invest as a hedge, you know, to hedge their careers because they, a lot of these guys are going to be out of business if I'm right about what's going to happen. So maybe they want some money on the don't pass line. And so they agreed to, um, to let me have a workshop. And so I went and I did the conference and I debated this guy and you can see the whole thing. If you go on YouTube and just search Peter Schiff mortgage bankers, you'll see the whole you don't see the whole debate. We just have my part of it. So you get my part of it and then, you know, some stuff at the end where it went back and forth. But his presentation wasn't there, although he had some, you know, you can see him rebutting me, but not his whole. Was, but he was very optimistic. You know, Peter, was this the same uh, conference that was depicted in the movie The Big Short? No, no. So The Big Short had nothing to do with me. But, you know, like in The Big Short, which, by the way, I hadn't even seen it, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> I lived it, so I never watched but it. it was, I it, thought it was, was going to get. It was a mortgage. It was a mortgage uh, bankers conference. Uh, yeah, but like 
the, the main character, it was Michael Berry, whoever it was, but somebody was in the audience and listening to it. I was the guy on the stage giving the speech, right? But I was explaining why the whole thing was a house of cards and it was going to collapse. But, you know, everybody else, of course, was probably bullish at this conference. I didn't attend the other speaking events. I, I you know, I, I didn't care what they had to say. I was just there to, to, to present my case and hopefully find some people that wanted to invest in shorting the subprime market, which is what that movie was based on. I was trying to get people to do that trade, right? The, the big short, I wanted people to put that trade on in 2016. The, the market blew up in 2017, right? So anybody that took my advice and shorted the subprime, you know, made those profits. Right. But you can watch my whole presentation again, Peter Schiff, Mortgage Bankers. But I'll tell you, they gave me a room. And even though there were 3,000 people in attendance, maybe 50, 60 people, 70 people, I can't remember exactly, attended my workshop. And of those people, one guy invested. One guy. I think he sent in $500,000, and a year later, I sent him uh, back. Maybe it was $5 million. I forget. He made like 10 times his money. I forget exactly what he invested. I think it was five hundred k. But he, he, he called up the office. He, you know, he talked to one of the reps there. And yeah, I heard Peter Schiff, and I wanted to invest. But that's it. So one out of 3,000 people, right, I just handed them that trade. I explained exactly how it was going to go down, and why they should participate. And only one guy did. So it shows you, you know, there's, it, it, it's, you know, you can, the idea, you know, you can bring a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? I brought 3,000 horses to that well, and only one of them decided to drink. So, so what is it when people are in a bubble, they just don't see anything but the bubble? Pretty much. I mean, they're, and a lot of times their, their minds, are affected by the fact that they've made money. I mean, the best uh, example of that mentality today is in cryptocurrencies, like Bitcoin in particular. And what's emboldened the people trapped in the Bitcoin bubble is how much money they've all made, you know, a lot of it on paper because they haven't sold. But when you have a guy like me, who has been critical of Bitcoin almost since the very beginning, right? As it's gone from pennies uh, to almost $60,000, right? And people are like, well, look, what do you know, right? You, you've been wrong all these years because look how expensive it is. Look at the price. And those people who are in on it, they're just so convinced that they're so brilliant because they bought it and it's gone up. And of course, what they don't realize is they're not brilliant. It's just that there's a lot of other people who are also not brilliant who made the same foolish decision that they did. And so you have this mob mentality where, you know, that old Wall Street expression, don't confuse brains with a bull market. Well, you definitely don't want to confuse brains with a bubble because that's an even uh, bigger mistake to make. But everybody thinks they're geniuses in a bubble, just like everybody thought they were geniuses during the real estate bubble. Everybody thought they were geniuses during the dot-com bubble. They just found out how dumb they were when the bubbles popped and all the air came out. And the same thing is going to happen you know, today to the, to the crypto crowd. So Bitcoin, you're telling me, doesn't have any intrinsic value? Well, I mean, you know that. It, I mean, of course it doesn't have any intrinsic value. It has a market price, right? People are willing to buy it. 
but you can't, you know, you know, confuse price with value, right? Even that's an old Warren Buffett's, you know, saying. Right. Price is what you pay, but value is what you get. And so, if you buy Bitcoin today, you might have to pay the price of about sixty thousand dollars, but you're getting no value. Yeah, that's what I ask every. You know, I've asked for the past five or six years. Uh, everyone I know knew who was invested in Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and thought they knew or told me that they knew a lot about how this works and it's a new world and yada, yada, yada. I just asked them one question. How, what is the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? Because if you knew the intrinsic value, then 60000 might be cheap or a million dollars might be cheap. What are you basing your investing on if you have no idea of what the intrinsic value is? Yeah. And I get the well, dumbest the answers in the world. It's worth the whole worth of the internet. Some s silly answers that are just absolutely ridiculous. Well, the answer I typically get is that nothing has intrinsic value, that a value, value yeah. is subjective. Yeah. And so think, the value is whatever people think it's worth. And that's what they truly believe. And, and a lot of these Bitcoin people, they, when, when I, when they always want to bring it back to gold because they say, you know, Bitcoin is digital gold. And so if I say, well, what's the intrinsic value of Bitcoin? They'll say, well, you know, what's the intrinsic value of gold? Gold doesn't have any value either. And I'll say, well, of course it does. So gold is an actual metal. You're wearing it on your In wrist. Fact, You're wearing it on a ring, <laughs> earrings, jewelry, right. so there's utility to but it. it. But the reason that we wear it is because of its properties, that it doesn't corrode, it doesn't tarnish, it doesn't, you know, it, it's, 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 it works better in jewelry than all these other metals that, that could be used. But gold has very rare and unique properties. It's very rare in the earth. Uh, and, and so it's a valuable metal. And... And whenever I point that out, people say, ah, oh, no, it's not. It doesn't have, you know, it's it's worthless, you know. So in order, in order to defend Bitcoin, they have to just try to say that gold has no value either, which is completely false. Gold has tremendous value. Um, what, always gets, yes, what always gets me, Peter, is that the same people who say that, I ask them, if you're dealing with such an undervalued asset, why are you holding dollars? Why, why don't you just convert all your money into Bitcoin all your property into Bitcoin because it's worth a zillion dollars and get rid of all this fiat currency that you're telling me is worthless. And well, you never hear you know, that. Uh, well, a lot of them have done that, actually. <laughs> but but, you, but you, you, know, must, some you, of them, you must know a different crowd than I do because I just. It's, no, it's, I, I mean, look, <laughs> there are some people that are pretty much all in, right, that all their liquidity is in Bitcoin. Now, I mean, you know, you can't live in your Bitcoin, so you don't necessarily going to sell your house to buy Bitcoin. Um, but a lot of other people who are in Bitcoin are diversified, right? So they, 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 they are confident that Bitcoin is going to go way up and they really believe in this narrative that it's going to be the new money and a store of value and a medium of exchange, whatever, but they're not betting everything they have on it. They're, they, they have a certain amount that they're betting and it's just part of their portfolio. So, I mean, at least I can respect that, uh, strategy. I just don't think that it's going to work or that Bitcoin is going to work, right? Like they do. If I actually thought that Bitcoin was going to work or had a reasonable chance of working, I guess I would own some of it too. But I wouldn't own all of it because certainly there are a lot of things that can go wrong with Bitcoin where it's, you know, that crashes. And, and so there are some people that recognize that there are things that could go wrong and it might not work out. 
And so they're, they're prudently div diversified. But yeah, there are some people who are way overweighted in Bitcoin and they're going to regret that. I mean, but right now they're convinced they can't lose. But that is generally the mentality in a bubble where people think that they can never lose. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever you think, whenever you get a situation where people think that they can't lose, they generally do. So do you see any similarities between now and when you were out there in 2007 with real estate? Well, yeah, there's certain, well, there's certainly similarities among the people who were buying and, you know, real estate and had multiple homes and were flipping homes and even individual homeowners who just believed that their house could never go down in value and it would just keep going up. There's a lot of similarities there and the people who own Bitcoin and who are under a similar delusion. Uh, and I saw the same attitude among people who fell in love with various dot-com stocks uh, during the 1990s where, oh, this stock can never go down. As, you know, and, and, and people had these attitudes. But the more relevant similarity, I think, is not some of these individual investors, but what's happening in the broader economy, where you had in the 1990s, you had a stock market bubble that was a byproduct of the Fed. Then you had a bigger bubble in real estate that was a byproduct of the same Fed and the same uh, you know, misguided monetary policy. We are now in an even bigger bubble that is the consequence of even more misguided and reckless monetary policy. Yet the powers that be, you know, the, the, the big, uh, you know, financial houses, uh, the big financial media outlets, everybody is oblivious, right? They're, they're, they're still trusting the Fed. They're cheerleading the bubble the same way they were in the 2000s, the same way as they were in the 1990s. They've learned absolutely nothing from their mistakes. In fact, I remember when I was on CNBC and I was being interviewed by the late Mark Haynes. And this is probably 2005, six time frame. And I was ex explaining the housing bubble. And Mark Haynes, you know, then, you know, interrupted me or I don't know if he, maybe he didn't interrupt me. But his next point was, wait a minute, Peter, are you telling me that there's a housing bubble? You really want me to or expect me to believe that we have a bubble in housing because we just had a bubble in stocks not five, six years ago. And these are like once in a lifetime or once in a hundred year event. Are you telling me that we have another bubble in housing so close to the bubble that we had in stocks? And I said, yeah, Mark, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And, and, and I said, and of course, the bubbles are related to each other <laughs> because they have the same source. They both got their air from the same Fed. Uh, but the, the Wall Street was clueless. And now we have an even bigger bubble than those two bubbles combined. And people still don't get it. And the Fed doesn't get it, you know, or at least publicly. They won't admit it. Who knows what they get privately? Yeah, for the Fed to telegraph that the next several years we're going to have virtually zero interest rate is basically throwing, the way I see it, is you're throwing gasoline on the fire. You're basically telling people to speculate. Well, in fact, the reason they're reassuring the markets that rates are going to be at zero is because if they let the markets <laughs> know that rates were going to go up, the markets would crash. Because it's the low rates that are propping it up. So they're trying to assure the speculators, hey, I'm not going to end this party. Just keep dancing. The music's not going to stop. Uh, but this is just meaning that the problems are getting worse. The bubble's getting bigger. And when the music eventually stops, not because the Federal Reserve wants to stop it, but because the markets will stop it, we're going to have a crash in the dollar. Uh, that's what's going to end this party.
And when do you see that? Well, it's long overdue. So, you know, we're literally living on borrowed time, which is why I tell people, be prepared in advance. You know, just like when people ask me, you know, when is the real estate market going to pop, break? I said, I don't know. But if you're short subprime, when it does, you're going to make a lot of money. And so, you know, I don't know when the dollar is going to crash. But if you're if you're short the dollar when it does, you're going to make a lot of money. And the way I short the dollar is by owning gold, owning silver, owning mining stocks, owning companies outside the United States that the shares trade in foreign currencies where their dividends are paid in foreign currencies, where they derive most of their income in those currencies. So I'm totally positioned to benefit from the drop in the dollar. And I think I'm going to benefit a lot more and make a lot more money personally and even for clients off the collapse of the dollar than I did off the collapse of the mortgage market. Yeah, you know, this recent $1.9 trillion stimulus, uh, someone asked me the other day, where are they getting all this money to keep sending out to everyone? And I said, you know, just look at your checkbook. It's it's coming from you. It's it's they're printing up dollars, and that's the money supply just continues, continues to expand like a balloon. And yeah, except the problem is people don't realize that when the Fed prints the money, that it costs them. I mean, people know that when the government raises your taxes and actually takes your money, you you see because the money comes out of your paycheck. And that's money you can't spend. And so you know that government spending has to be paid for. But when they just send out $2 trillion and don't raise anybody's taxes, a lot of people think that we're getting all this government for free. We're not. You don't get anything for free, right? When the government prints money and spends that money, right, there is a cost. And that cost is measured in inflation. What happens is they inflate the money supply that new money chases the supply of goods and services that exist because the government doesn't add to the supply of goods and services. It just prints money. It doesn't create new goods and services to spend the money on. It just creates money. And now people spend that money on the services and the goods that were already there. And so now in order to clear the market, prices have to go up. Now everything that you want to buy costs more. And because stuff costs more, you buy less. And that's the same thing as you buying less because you have less money. Now you're buying less because your money has less purchasing power and the prices go up. You know, I have a special report that's on my website. People should download it. It's free. It's called tax by inflation because inflation is a tax. And first, you need to understand what inflation is. And once you know it's a tax, then there are things you can do to avoid it. And that's what the the special report. So if you go to uh, Europac.com, E-U-R-O-P-A-C.com, I think on the front page of my website there is that special report and just, you know, download it and read it. Uh, but yeah, inflation is going to be a horrific, a horrific tax. It's going to hit most those that can least afford to pay it. It's very regressive. It hurts the middle class and the poor the most. And it hurts also people uh, with in a way, the, the it helps, senior citizens, hmm? senior citizens oh, as yeah. well who live on a fixed budget. Oh, yeah. In fact, a lot of people who are retired are going to end up having to leave retirement early, you know, because their money is not going to uh, cut it anymore. I mean, their money is going to retire and then they're going to have to go back to work. That's the problem. Uh, But so if you know this tax is coming, you can do something to avoid it or mitigate it at least. And that's the point of the special report. But people just don't get how how bad this is going to be. I mean, very few people even remember the 1970s. I mean, I remember them, but I was a kid. I mean, I wasn't an adult. 
Um, but people read about it. Oh, stagflation. You know, we had high inflation, a weak economy. Well, what we're going to have now is going to be much worse. It's not just going to be stagflation. It's going to be an inflationary depression. Yeah, I remember uh, President Ford at the time I was also in elementary and then high school and wearing uh, the wind buttons whip inflation now. And I yeah, remember yeah. my mother going and buying groceries each week, complaining that the bags, she brought home fewer bags with the same amount of money. And I remember this time tomatoes were rising in price and, 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 and food prices were just going through the roof. It was, it was a disaster. Yeah. And, you know, we've changed the CPI a lot since then. So uh, prices are rising quite a bit. And if you remember, too, Nixon imposed wage and price controls when the CPI hit 4%. And, you know, we could be at a 4% CPI this year, which probably means that the actual CPI is closer to 10, if not well north of, of 10. But the whole idea of those whip inflation now buttons, the reason they were a fraud is because the government tried to pretend that inflation was somehow caused by the public and that if the public got together, we could whip inflation. But inflation was caused by the Federal Reserve. They were the ones printing all the money the prices were going up as a consequence of that inflation. Right. So farmers weren't causing inflation by raising prices. You know, the Arabs weren't causing inflation by raising the price of gas. You know, unions weren't causing inflation by demanding higher wages. All this stuff happened as a result of money losing value. Because money had less value, stuff was more expensive. When we started sending you know, Saudi Arabia dollars that had lower purchasing power, they had to raise the price of their oil. That's, that, that, that's what happened. So the public couldn't whip inflation. The Federal Reserve was causing inflation, and the government was lying about it. You know, I always remember, I'm, did you ever watch the show um, uh, All in the Family? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I remember there was an episode of All in the Family when uh, Ar you know, they Archie Bunker or whatever, they were talking about uh, the, the wind buttons. And then Mike, you know, this, the meat, meathead son-in-law, said, you know, you better get down to the store because they're about to raise the prices on those buttons. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, we know for, for average people, just to go on Zillow, for example, and just look up in vacation areas, uh, parts of Arizona, parts of California, there were bidding wars, bidding wars on, 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 on housing prices, second homes that people are buying, that mm -hmm. the starting point <clears throat> is the asking price, and you have four or five people bidding up the price the 30 to 40 to 50% higher. And I asked one broker, yeah, why, is that, why is that happening? He goes, because money is zero, and meaning you're making zero in the bank, you might as well own a house that you can enjoy. And well, but also, remember, back then, people were buying these houses with other people's money. They were putting nothing down, so they had nothing to lose. And the interest rates were low. I remember I was in a cab ride in, in uh, San Francisco or something, and I was talking to a cabbie who had just bought you know, five, $600,000 house. He's a cab driver. And I talked to him about it. He goes, yeah, he goes, it's really, I, I think it's crazy, but I, you know, I'm buying it with zero down. So what the hell? I mean, if I actually had to put my own money into it, I don't think I'd do it. Yeah, but Peter, but Peter, like, Peter he, he didn't care. But that was then. I'm talking about now. I was just vacationing oh. in Arizona and uh, the tour guide was telling us how he moved from San Jose, California to Arizona. <laughs> and there was a bidding war on his house. I think he was asking 600000 eventually went for 800000 yeah. And then when he got to Scottsdale, he had to up his bid over the ask price because everybody was buying these things. He goes, I said, why were you spending this? My mortgage, he said, is virtually going to be, you know, 1% or 2% or so. And my money's earning zero mm -hmm. in the bank. 
Yeah, a lot of people have been enticed into the market by the lowest mortgage rates, you know, in their lifetimes. But also there is a quick rush. A lot of people who are living in cities, you know, now have rethought their whole lifestyle in the wake of COVID and, you know, working from home. And so you have a lot of people that are living in these cities that are suddenly looking at the suburbs or looking at other areas and they're all rushing and there isn't a lot of new supply on the market. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be related to debt. Look where I am in Puerto Rico, in my neighborhood. I've never seen anything like this as far as sheer appreciation. And th these are all cash buyers. This is not mortgages. This is all, you can't buy a house in my neighborhood if you need a mortgage because somebody's going to outbid you for cash. But I would say that prices, I'm not making this up, have gone up three to four times since I moved here in 2014 or start. I mean, crazy stuff, mm. crazy stuff. I mean, where I can sell my house for three to four times what I paid for it to somebody who's going to write a check in cash and say, you know, and, and, and the problem is like the reason that prices are so high right now is nobody wants to move. Nobody wants to sell. And so now somebody comes to Puerto Rico and they want to live in this neighborhood and there's nothing to buy. And so they keep on bidding up, bidding up, bidding up prices until a guy is like, you know, all right, I paid $3 million for this house and you're offering me $12 million. You know, all right, I'll sell. But I mean, this is what's going on. But I've heard people have actually turned down. I've talked to people who have been offered three to four times what they paid and they say no. <laughs> so people, people are making offers for homes that aren't even for sale. Right. You get, you know, unsolicited, you know, would you would you would you consider selling your house? I mean, there's no for sale signs around. But yeah, but a lot of this, too, I think, is because of the cheap money and the price of everything is going up. Not so much because the price of everything is going up, but the value of the money is going down. So I think wealthier people and I live in a, you know, in a high end neighborhood, they just want to get rid of their cash. And how many stocks are they going to buy? There's a, even a lot of crypto people here, but it's like, hell, you know, you're going to buy something. And it's like, I got to get rid of this money. And I, might as, I mean, look, some, I, I might as well, well enjoy what, it. They, I might as well enjoy somebody it. Somebody paid, <laughs> right, 60, 70 million dollars for a digital piece of art. Right. You know, so, I mean, if that if that digital art is worth 60, 70 million dollars, hell, my house is worth more than that. So, it, I mean, now there's no price, right? It's like, hey, just let me buy something because... It's like a game of musical chairs, right? When the music stops playing, whatever cash you have, whatever dollars you have, turn in, turns into monopoly it turns money. Turns into dust. So you right. got to turn it in. Yeah, like you remember that show, was it Brewster's Millions, a movie where the guy has to spend all this money or he doesn't get to inherit a larger right. amount right. and he's just rushing to just get rid of the money because if he gets caught with it, he loses. So I think it's almost like the Brewster Millions economy where everybody is trying to spend their money on assets. I don't want to get rid of it. I don't want to just throw a huge party and blow it, right? I want to turn it into assets. And even if I overpay for those assets, who cares? Because I got out of Dodge. I got rid of dollars that are going to be worth nothing. And now I have a house that at least will be worth something. So what do you see as the catalyst for popping this bubble? <clears throat> Well, again, I think it's going to happen in the dollar. And the reason I think so is I think that the Fed will keep blowing air into the bubble until the dollar cracks. Because the way the Fed keeps everything propped up, the real estate market, the stock market, the bond market, the whole economy, the reason the U.S. government can keep spending money is because the Federal Reserve keeps printing it. But the key is, at some point, that money won't have any value. And that's what ends it. Because in order to prop up everything else, 
the Fed is sacrificing the dollar. Now, right now, they keep printing money, and the dollar's value hasn't collapsed. So they can keep printing more. And they're going to keep printing more and keep running deficits until the dollar collapses. Because until the dollar collapses, there's no reason to stop. I mean, why end a good thing? Why rain on your own party, right? So they're going to wait for a crisis. Only this is going to be much worse than the financial crisis of 08, because this is going to be a U.S. dollar crisis, which means it's also a sovereign debt crisis, U.S. Treasury bonds, because Treasury bonds are just IOU dollars into the future. And the big difference is when the crisis is the dollar, the U.S. government can't do anything to bail anybody out because all they can do in a crisis is print more dollars. But if the dollar is the crisis, then printing more just throws gasoline on the fire. So this next crisis that's coming, no bailouts, no stimulus. Everybody is going to have to pay the piper uh, when we have a dollar crisis. And believe me, the bill is going to be huge. You see them raising interest rates? Eventually, yes, when they have no choice. But they're not going to raise interest rates until they have to, because the minute they raise interest rates, everything collapses. You know, and when they raise interest rates, that's when the U.S. government has to confess that it's broke and has to start cutting spending. Hey, we can't do any of these programs. In fact, we have to cut back on the programs we already have because we don't have any money. And we can't get it from the Fed anymore because the Fed is no longer in the business of printing money. The Fed is in the business of shrinking the money supply. It's trying to fight inflation. So it's, it's destroying the money it already created. It's raising interest rates. So I think in that environment, not only can't the government borrow new money, it can't even repay the debts that it already owes. It can't even make the interest payments. Because remember, the bonds are all short term. So the T-bills, when they mature, they got to roll them over. Well, they won't have the money. So the government's going to default. That's what's going to happen. Just like subprime borrowers, when they couldn't make the payments, they defaulted. The U.S. government is a subprime borrower, too. Without the Fed, all its checks bounce. You know? And if it doesn't have the Fed, uh, then it defaults. And so it's one or the other. It's either hyperinflation or default. You know? So you decide. Pick your poison. So the, for an average investor, they should be looking at what now? Well, alternatives to the U.S. investments, alternatives to the U.S. dollar. Uh, you know, look at uh, some of the foreign markets, both developed and emerging, which I think the emerging markets are, you know, going to be a little rockier, you know, bumpier, but give you more long term gain uh, as the whole world, you know, moves past the U.S. dollar and the U.S. dollar is no longer the reserve currency. But you need to have very unconventional portfolios because this is a very unconventional outcome uh, that the establishment is not prepared for. They're going to be blindsided by it like 08, like 2000, only the Fed's not going to be there to bail them out. That was what happened. If you were completely wrong, if you were completely oblivious to the problems that caused the 2008 financial crisis, it was okay because the Fed bailed you out and you ended up making money anyway. Uh, but it's not going to work this time. So you got to bail yourself out prematurely. And that's what I'm doing, right? If you're interested in, you know, having me help you implement the strategies, then, you know, go to Europe Pacific Capital's website or my, my mutual fund website, Asset Management Company. This is my company here in Puerto Rico, Europe Pacific uh, Asset Management. And uh, epacfunds.com uh, is the website for uh, my asset management company. And you can speak to uh, one of my representatives about the strategies and, and how the, we can work them into your portfolio. I have five proprietary mutual funds that could actually be bought anywhere. 
or you can have them in specialized wrap accounts that, that we manage at my company. Mm -hmm. And I have separately managed accounts of individual stocks and bonds that we manage all overseas, international investments. So what happens to the United States uh, and its currency of the dollar? Well, the dollar is going to get marked down. I mean, look, look what happened to the dollar in the 1970s. The dollar lost 70% of its value, 80%. I mean, prices went way up. That's why gold went from $35 an ounce to 800. That's why oil went from $3 a barrel to $30 a barrel. I mean, the price of everything went up in the 1970s. And in fact, because money lost so much value, that's why so many women started to work. If you go back to the 1960s and you look at the typical American family, uh, the housewife didn't have a job. I don't care what job the husband had, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, right? Fireman, policeman, teacher. His wife didn't have a job. That one paycheck was enough, had enough buying power to support the entire family, right? But by the end of the 1970s, early 1980s, that paycheck had been so diminished by inflation that all of a sudden the guy couldn't support his family anymore. His wife had to go get a job. That really was the beginning. You know, people want to say, oh, it was women's liberation. No, it wasn't. Women were liberated when they didn't have to work. That's liberation. When you're forced to work, that's when you lose your liberty. You don't have a choice. You got to leave your kids at home and you got to go out and work because your husband can't support you anymore. And that was a big change, you know. And, and so I think we're going to see another substantive change this time where we wipe out retirement. I said earlier, no one's going to be retired anymore in America. Everybody's going to be working because no one has any savings that are going to have any purchasing power. Yeah, kind of, and what's your upbeat prediction? Well, my upbeat prediction is that maybe this crisis will be a catalyst, and this is maybe wishful thinking, but maybe a catalyst to cause America to understand finally the root cause of its problems, meeting government and, and central banks, and that we can kind of go backwards to the, the principles that were enshrined uh, in our constitution by our founders and go back to a free market economy with limited government and sound money. That would be great uh, if we could do that. And then we could marry, you know, 19th century liberty with 21st century technology. And then we could have an unprecedented economic boom. Yeah. Because if you think of what America accomplished without computers, right, and all the things that we have now that we didn't have 100, 200 years ago, just imagine what we can accomplish if we had the same freedom that we had back then with the technology that we have now. And in fact, had we had the same amount of freedom in the 20th century and now 21st that we had in the 19th, we'd have much better technology right now too. I, it's, it's, it's hard to know how much better off we'd have been, how much wealthier, how much higher our living standards would be now had we not gone off on this big government tangent and created this huge welfare state uh, and, and given so much power to the central bank. I mean, we, it would be a whole different world here, I think. You know, we might actually look like the Jetsons by now. Who knows? But, you know, you're saying this right on the right on the heels of a one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package. So uh, it's a sedative. It's not a stimulus. It sedates the economy, yeah, but it does yeah. encourage more reckless spending. More. It's, it's just a, it just. Yeah, it just it, 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 uh, people don't need to work anymore. There's no productivity. It's going to decrease productivity. Such an amazing amount. It's well, 
Well, we're paying people not yeah, to work. Yeah. We're giving them a better deal. We're giving them a twenty-five yeah, dollars an hour or so with their unemployment and with this, uh, with for even stimulus. Why work at even fifteen dollars an hour when you could yeah, stay look, home? Look, nobody reported last week the trade deficit, merchandise trade deficit, biggest monthly trade effort in, deficit in history. Right? Why do we have these huge trade deficits? Because we're not producing. We're just producing money, but that doesn't produce the the, the, the products products that you buy. So we're relying on overseas economies to produce the stuff that we consume. Well, why should they do that? For what? In exchange for our pieces of paper? What the hell do they want those for? They can print their own money. Uh, What people want are goods. That's what makes your life better, not having a stack of paper. Uh, And and so the dollar is going to collapse. And meanwhile, the ink is barely dry on the 1.9 trillion. And now they're talking about another three or four. Unbelievable. It's just absolutely amazing. Why did you move to Puerto Rico yep. out of all places in 2014? Well, I actually didn't even move here. I bought my condo, my first property here, at the end of 2013, and it closed in 2014. And I moved to business here from California in 2014. I moved here full time, and I bought my house in 2017. So I still own the condo, and now we have a house here. And... um. But the reason, I mean, there are a lot of reasons I moved here. But what put Puerto Rico on my radar, because otherwise I, I wouldn't have even considered it, was the fact that since it's not a U.S. state, the U.S. income tax doesn't apply to any of your Puerto Rican sourced income. That includes your capital gains. Any of your, you know, your, and, and so I'm expecting a lot of capital gains, and I have plenty of income right now. And by living in Puerto Rico that income is subject to just a Puerto Rico tax, which is zero when it comes to capital gains, and it's 4% on the income I earn running my business. So that's a great deal. So that's, you know, I found out about it. But what the reason I really moved here, because I, I, I was just coming here as a vacationer, you know, for a few years, but I really just fell in love with the community. I love, I love living here. It's a great lifestyle. It's great weather. There's great people. So I enjoy living here from a lifestyle perspective. And, you know, I mean, if, if, if I had to move up, you know, someplace in Alaska, you know, to, to get these tax breaks, I don't know that I would do it. Uh, but on a tropical island, you know, which to me reminds me a lot of Maui. And, uh, but there's some great, great people here. I have a really good social life here, a lot of parties and a lot of people, like-minded people. So it's just a great overall experience. It's great for my kids. The kids have a great lifestyle here. Um, so there, there are a lot of reasons behind, you know, why I'm here. Are you seeing, are and, you seeing a and, lot of like-minded people like you're uh, moving down? Because uh, I know a lot of people from New York, a lot of friends of mine are <clears throat> buying and starting to live in Florida simply because of the uh, state tax. Uh, do you see yeah, a lot of Yeah, look, I mean... That's a motivation too. And I, you know, I tell people, well, if you're going to move down to Florida, just keep going and you get to Puerto Rico. Uh, because I mean, it's, I like it better. I've lived in Florida too. I lived in South Florida. I used to have a house in Boca. My mom was living there. I sold it. She lives now with us in Puerto Rico. Uh, although she, she spends more time at my house in Connecticut than I do. I don't spend that much time there anymore. Um, but I still have a house up there. Um, but, you know, what did you ask me now? I just forgot. Are you seeing a lot of people like yourself, successful oh, yeah, like business minded. people coming town? Yeah, very much so. Look, I just ran into a CEO of a major company, publicly traded company. He just moved here, you know, because the company is like, they said, oh, you know, you can work remotely. Everybody can, he goes, and he ended up coming down here. 
So he chose, he chose here. He wanted to get out of the cold weather, and, you know, this is a great place to be. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people that look at this as like a real-life uh, Galt's Gulch, you know, from uh, Atlas Shrugged, that a lot of people are moving down here and we're creating a, a community. And the biggest beneficiaries of this is going to be Puerto Rico. I mean, if Puerto Rico can simply resist the temptation to take away these tax breaks, and there's always a lot of pressure to do it, you know, get the rich. And if they don't become a state, right, and they just continue in their status quo, this place in 10 years, it is going to be Wall Street and Silicon Valley combined. I mean, this is going to be the biggest economic boom and maybe the only economic boom in the United States. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, this, you know, and that's one of the reasons that real estate prices are rising. People are dying to get down here. They don't care what it costs. They just want to live here. And they're going to pay what it costs because they want to get out of where they are and they want to come to Puerto Rico. Well, so the states, some of the states, like I'm in New York, all they have to do is keep raising rates and uh, they're going to help uh, fuel your beautiful lifestyle. Well, the more the more they raise taxes, look, I think the capital gains tax, which is now top top end federal is 24 percent, right? About 20 percent cap gains and then 3.9 Obamacare, which is the Medicare tax. They're going to probably double that to about 50% on the federal level under, under, under Biden's various plans. A lot of people are going to take a look at 50% uh, in the U.S. And then on top of that, New York State or California State, and compare that to zero in Puerto Rico, and it's a no-brainer. People are going to get up and they're going to move. Yeah, just absolutely amazing. All right, uh, beautiful. But, you know, it's better that they move to Puerto Rico than they move to uh, another country. Right. At least Puerto Ricans are Americans. At least the Americans, the people who live here. And anybody that wants to move to Puerto Rico can move. You don't need a visa. Just come down here. So if any, anybody just wants to live in Puerto Rico and enjoy beautiful weather, enjoy the lifestyle, and get rid of those confiscatory taxes— Anybody can come down here, you know, so it's much better that all these opportunities are in Puerto Rico than if they were in Dubai or Singapore or Hong Kong, right? Much better off that they're right here in our own neighborhood. Yeah, you're three and a half hours or so from New York uh, airport. Of, of yeah, yeah, it's a three hour flight. Usually it takes four hours, you know, uh, you know, from because you have to sit in a plane a little bit. But I think the, the total wheels up, wheels down time is three hours. hours. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I just um, I just don't get what. Um, what states are doing by thinking that if you tax the wealthy, they're going to stay and keep paying these taxes. The wealthy are the most mobile in society, and they will go to a place where their money is safe and tax lightly. So they're not going to stick around. It's just absolutely staggering what's happening now. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the people who aren't wealthy, I mean, they're doing their best to avoid taxes, too. Uh, they might not have as much mobility, but they have other things that they could do. You know, and, and, and at the end of the day, they, they may be mobile. It depends how big the incentive is to, to right. you know, to move. Um, but what's also important to consider when you're looking at taxes is the the unintended consequences that it has on shaping behavior, you know, because you get less of what you tax. That's just an economic truism. And and when you start taxing people in certain ways, uh, they respond to those taxes and their, you know, their behavior changes the same way when it comes to giving out government money. Right. Uh, you get more of what you subsidize. So when the government starts giving money to people that meet certain qualifications or criteria, 
people are going to change their lifestyles and their circumstances to become eligible to receive right, these benefits. Right. And of course, some people will receive those benefits fraudulently. They'll just lie to get them, right? But some people won't lie. They'll just alter their lifestyle so that they qualify, right? You know, there are plenty of people that don't want to go back to work because they'd rather get unemployment benefits. I remember back in the 70s uh, when I was young, I was maybe 18 or 19, I had a summer job, and the boss told me, don't work overtime because if you work overtime, your taxes are going to eat up most of that increase. So you'll put in an extra five or six hours, but you'll walk away with less money. So the incentive yeah, is so not to work. you might as well have the leisure. Right, Yeah, that, they, well, it didn't pay. It, you might as well just enjoy your, your time off. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Uh, Peter Schiff, once again, man, thank you so much. I just hope that everything you mentioned here about our future with the dollar does not take place. I hope saner heads <laughs> prevail because if not, we're really in a bad storm. We're going to be Yeah, really well, unfortunately, it's too late to prevent the crisis. So that's inevitable. But again, what we do in the aftermath of the crisis, we still have uh, the ability to do the right thing. So that's where I have that optimistic note. We can't avoid the crisis, but what we can do is do the right thing in the aftermath of that crisis. And so that's one of the reasons I'm out here. I want people to understand, A, that it's coming, why it's coming. So when the government tries to blame capitalism, people will know that it's not capitalism's fault. If we had capitalism, we wouldn't have had the problem. But capitalism is the cure. It's the only way out of the hole that the government put us in. Right. Outstanding. Peter Schiff, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And, right. and good luck uh, with your show. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.